So as we look at Romans 10, there's a lot of key words that come to mind. And one word that you'll see throughout is the word believe. What comes to your mind when I say the word believe? As one uh, movie said, maybe a cat poster. No, not that. Or maybe a hiker at the summit of a mountain or someone who lands a job that they've been working towards for years. Or maybe a soccer coach trying to fire up his players before a big match out on the field. Those are all maybe word pictures that we have in mind when we hear the word believe. But for Paul, it's very, very personal. What to believe, who to believe in. And so he talks about belief and believing, not about turning inward, but rather turning outward as we look to the message of Christ. The message of Christ changed Paul's life. It transformed his life from believing one system, one set of beliefs, one set of rules, to now believing in Christ, the Savior, who is the foundation and the anchor for his life. So my goal this morning is to fuel your affections. As we go through Romans 10, it's easy to see that one verse, if you confess with your mouth, or easy to see everyone who calls the name of the Lord will not be put to shame. We see those one verses, those bumper sticker verses, those refrigerator verses, and not see the context. So I want us to see the context this morning. So I want to fuel your affections to call on Jesus Christ as Lord and to proclaim the message of Christ to your family, to your friends, to your coworkers, to, your, to the nations. As I often say, to anyone who has a pulse, they need the message of Christ. So Paul writes, and he writes typical Paul style where he hardly takes a breath. It's like, Paul, put a comma in there. We need need you to stop for a second. And he writes and he prays outside of Corinth on his way back to Jerusalem. He writes um, to, to the church, and he wants to go to Spain via Rome. And his goal is not to see the tourist attractions, but for the gospel to continue to spread. You know, it's like that, that pebble that you throw into a pond or in the ocean. You see the first impact, and then it goes out further and further. He wants to see the gospel continue to make an impact. Hear what Michael Bird says about Paul's goal in writing Romans. Paul wants the Roman church on the side with the gospel message, but there is some division. There are some internal squabbling going on because of a bunch of Jewish Christians have been expelled and then returned. He wants them to be united, all singing off the same sheet of gospel music. He's laying out his apostolic credentials in terms of his ministry and his message. He also wants to help them out with some local issues they are facing. He sets out the gospel in theological depth. Romans is an exercise in gospelizing, putting the gospel out in theological depth. Part of the reason why I chose Romans 10 is because at South Shore Baptist, we've been going through Romans. And so we don't have time to go through Romans chapters 1 through 9. This is where you say, thank you. Uh, But we're just going to dive in here at least to get some context for Romans 10. So first... There's a gospel denial. First point here is there's a gospel denial, righteousness through law. So if you're taking note, notes, gospel denial, righteousness through law. Just the first three verses. It's also the end of chapter 9. As Paul points out, this is what Israel is clinging to, their own righteousness. And so Paul begins the letter 
uh, in chapter 1, as you are likely aware, and saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation for the Jews and Gentiles alike. Then he outlines and proclaims the beauty of the gospel throughout the letter over and over again until it reaches a crescendo in Romans 15 as Jews and Gentiles are praising God together. The gospel must be foundational to our faith. This is what fuels Paul's prayer in verse 1. You can just hear his heart beating on the page. Brothers, sisters, my heart's prayer, my desire is for Israel, for them, is for them to be saved, is for their salvation. So he prays for the salvation of the Jews. Why? Because they misunderstood God. He knew their frame of reference. He knew where they were coming from. And so this is instructive for us. Are we praying? Are we praying for our family members and friends who don't know the one true God? Let me encourage you to pray. It's easy for people to talk about God. You may have noticed this as well. You can talk about God in general, in reference, but then when you start to narrow it down to Jesus Christ, then you can just feel the conversation begin to get squirmy and like, oh, well, let's, let's not go there. But we don't just need to talk about God like he's a genie in the sky or to use God as a good luck charm. But do we know the one true God? And if we know the one true God, we will pray for our family members, for our friends, for our coworkers. As Pastor Cody says at South Shore Baptist, we cannot say, well, all we, all we have left to do is pray. Well, we, I guess we can just, just pray. No, there's much more power in prayer than just simply praying. We get to pray passionately, humbly, boldly pray for those who not only know about God, but to believe in the one true God through trusting in Jesus Christ. So Paul's concern and his prayer is based on the fact that the Jews, they have a zeal for God. They're passionate, but their zeal is misplaced. It's not according to biblical knowledge, as we see in verse 2. So this is where the gospel denial comes in. The Jews believed they could attain righteousness and a right standing through their own obedience to the law. That's what verse 3 is saying in a nutshell. We take pride when we observe the law, especially when it makes us look good. Oh, I'm, you know, it's like you're coming up to the speed trap. You're supposed to be going 30, and you see a blinking uh, red 38, and you slow down to 29 for those two, few seconds, like, oh, good, I'm, I'm obeying the law. Soon as you pass that speed trap, what do you do? You just go right back up to 38, if you're like me. Uh, <laughs> and so we like to obey the law or to think that we're obeying the law. It makes us look good. It demonstrates our ability. So there's laws for our good. Then there's laws that we create that make us look good. Then there's just bizarre laws altogether. I found these online. Maybe you'll find them as bizarre as I did. If a frog dies during a frog jumping contest in California, it can't be eaten. Good to know. In Indiana, liquor stores can't sell chilled water or soda. In West Virginia, it's illegal to use a ferret for hunting. There you go. 
So we like laws at times to showcase our morality or maybe our ability. So when we look to laws for our ability to keep the law as our source of salvation, we miss the mark. That's what Paul is telling Israel. You're missing the mark if you're looking to your own ability. If you're looking for your own self-centered rules or your own standards, you're missing the way to know God. That's what Paul points out in the book of Philippians. When we look inward to our, our ability, we put our confidence in our flesh instead of the God who alone can save us. We attempt to secure a righteousness of our own from the law, but there's only one true righteousness that comes from God, a righteousness obtained through faith in Christ. That's what Philippians 3.9 tells us. So the second point, gospel truth, righteousness through faith. So we saw gospel denial, righteousness through law. Now the second point is gospel truth, righteousness through faith. So Paul helps Israel understand now, don't look inward, don't look to your own ability, don't look to your own ways to keep the law. Righteousness is through faith. We just sang about it in Christ alone. Christ our righteousness. So Paul pleads for the Jews, the Jews he loved, the people he knew. He understood their desires. He understood their motivations. But he also understood their misdirected goals. So in verse 4, you're going to see, we're going to go through the passage quickly. We see Christ is the end of the law. For who? For righteousness to everyone who believes. There's that word again. Belief. Believes. Believes in who? Believes in Christ. And so, Christ is the answer, not only for Paul, but for us. He's the one to which our faith must rest in. So, Christ is the provider. He's the promise keeper. He is the end of the law for righteousness because He literally fulfills the law and is our righteousness, provided that we believe in Him. So, verse 4 is foundational. There's so many key verses in this section. Verse 4 is foundational for verses 5 through 13. Paul turns our attention to the law. If you're going to turn Israel's attention to the law, who would you quote? Moses, Mr. Law himself. And so he quotes from Exodus, he quotes from Deuteronomy, and he quotes from Leviticus here as Moses says, the one who does these things will live by them. As I read that verse, I was a bit confused. And then I was encouraged as I read commentators, and they were confused as well. And so, you know, as I read the commentators, they said, this verse is controversial, confusing, and has a lot of history. Like, very good. I'm in good company. And so, there's many opinions about what Paul means about righteousness that is from the law. The one who does these things will live by them. So what can we deduce from what Paul is saying here? We've already seen Paul from Philippians say that we can't have a righteousness that comes from the law. And just a few chapters earlier in Romans, we see that righteousness can't come from the law because the law incites people to sin. Then Paul continues to walk through the Old Testament. I I admit often I don't know my Old Testament as well as I should, but Paul here is helping Israel to understand who God is by quoting from the Old Testament time and again. And there's one quote 
there's a lot of different references from the Old Testament. We won't look at them all. But there's one quote I want us to see from Deuteronomy 9.4. It's in the section verses 6 and 7. When we read, do not say in your heart who will go up to heaven, again, I'm thinking, what does this mean? Is this a, uh, a pithy saying? But the reason why this is important is because of what God told Israel in Deuteronomy 9. It's, it's important because Israel is warned against assuming that the inher- their inheritance of the land is due to their own righteousness. Israel could have many times said, well, look at who we are. We're the children of God. We're the children of the promise. We're the people who know the covenants. But God tells them through Moses, ah, ah, be careful in assuming things based upon your own righteousness. So Paul is taking this here from Deuteronomy, and he's helping Israel understand, don't assume you are saved based upon your own ability to keep the law. So Paul's giving his audience and us a clear picture, clear picture, righteousness is based on who? Christ. It's based on Christ. It's the good Sunday school answer. If the preacher asks the question, just say Jesus. And so we see that righteousness is based on Christ. So it's not based upon our ability, but a humility that trusts in Christ. Then in verse 6, Paul points us to Christ's incarnation. Then in the following verse, Paul asks the reader another question. Who will go down into the abyss? So many questions, Paul. But then he gives us an illustration. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Paul interprets his own verse for us. Tom Schreiner said this about verses 6 and 7. The wording here fits nicely with the conception of Jesus being raised from the dead. For the abyss was considered to be the netherworld from which the dead were raised. Romans 10, 6 and 7 should be interpreted together as an admonition warning people what they should not do. They should not seek to bring Christ down to the earth or raise him from the dead, for these things have already been done. They were accomplished by God for the sake of his people. Thus, the response called for is believing, not doing. That's the response, believing, not doing. So, speaking of response, what is our response to Paul's message? Let's summarize. We're going to kind of go through chunks at a time now. Um, as Again, we're going through a whole chapter. Let's look at verses 8 through 13. This, the summary is, is there, I think, in verse 8. The message is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. In other words, you know the message. Well, again, I've left myself thinking as I'm studying, well, what on earth does this mean, Paul? It sounds like a slip of paper from a fortune cookie. Or a hint when playing the hot, cold guessing game. But Paul isn't playing around here. He's helping the believers understand the message sent from God, or as he refers to it as the message of faith. The message of faith is what Paul proclaims, and it's what should be on our lips of who Jesus is and what he has done. The message of faith is outlined, to know God is to confess Jesus is Lord. And to believe in the history-altering event when Jesus was raised from the dead. If you believe this message, the message that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is prophet, priest, and king, Lord of all, 
you will be saved. That's the message Paul proclaims. That's the message that we proclaim. This is the good news. So you've read these verses before that if you confess with your mouth, if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. Found faith. He was so excited that he was believing in Christ. He was far from Christ. He came to know Christ uh, on the West Coast. He made his way back to the East Coast. And he wanted to tell his friends about Christ. He wanted to tell them about this Jesus who saves. And so Pierre went to his friend's house. I think it was his friend who he grew up with right across the street. So started telling him about Jesus. And his friend had some questions about this Jesus. And Pierre was not prepared for any questions. He was just prepared to tell about Jesus and then to hear him say, okay, I believe in Jesus. So he wasn't prepared for the questions. He got in a wrestling match with him. He put his friend in a headlock and he repeatedly said, say Jesus is Lord and you'll be saved. Say Jesus is Lord and you'll be saved. Well, he, Pierre was right on biblically. That's what it says. But I don't think that's maybe the method Paul had in mind. Say Jesus is Lord and you'll be saved. Well, he believed in Christ. That is Pierre. I don't know about his friend. <laughs> And so you, you have to applaud him for his zeal. So Paul is just as zealous for Israel. And as we look at this passage, as we examine what is required of us as it relates to salvation, the conversation begins with faith. That's what we read in verse 10. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness. One confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. You've met people. You've known people. They know a lot about God. They know a lot of facts about the Bible, but they may not believe in their heart. So Paul tells us what belief looks like. He teaches us about saving faith. Let me, let me say this this morning. Let me encourage you to know this. Saving faith must be directed to the right object. Saving faith isn't ethereal. It's not a faith in faith, but it must be directed to the right object. I want to quote one more person this morning. Ronald Nash properly defines faith. Biblical faith finds its expression in both the objective content of the Christian gospel, the life, the death, the burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the subjective feelings that indicate true heart transformation, trust, and sincerity. Now, you may be thinking, well, this is a lot of scholarly stuff that doesn't matter, but let me encourage you, it absolutely does. Many on the South Shore take inclusivism as their operating worldview that adopts the cultural definition of faith, which is a generic trust in whatever spiritual light may be available. A generic trust in whatever spiritual light may be available. What does that look like? That might look like people looking to stones for healing, a guru for life coaching, or a new bestseller which will help us apply the latest trend to unlock our potential. That's the cultural good news. But that's not the biblical good news. We're not believing in a force in a higher power, or in humanity's goodness, Scripture reassures us 
who our faith should rest in. What does it say in verse 11? What does verse 11 tell us? Everyone, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. That's the good news. That's worth repeating. Everyone who believes in Jesus Christ will not be put to shame. Not only is that worth believing, we're going to see in just a few verses, that's worth sharing. That's worth proclaiming. Jesus Christ can save Jews, non-Jews, you, me. That's why we call it the good news. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Then I love how Paul transitions. It's like Paul knows what he's doing. He definitely knows what he's saying. What about those who don't know? This is the third point. We saw a gospel denial, righteousness through law, gospel truth, righteousness through faith. Now the last section, gospel appeal, believe the word of Christ. This is the gospel appeal. Paul is telling us, he's telling you, he's telling me, believe Christ, trust in Christ. In verses 14 and 15, we get a mini sermon and four questions. You might be thinking, you mean we could have had a sermon and four questions? Don't ask that question. Um, But we get this mini sermon here, and Paul's labored for nine chapters outlining for us the sinfulness of man, outlining for us the sufficiency of Christ. Over and over again, he's telling us, he's showing us believing in Christ results in righteousness. He tells us that if we believe in Christ, we will not be put to shame. This is what has caused Paul to write with fire in his bones. This is what causes Paul to ask these questions that have eternal consequences. Hear these four questions. How then can they call on him, that is Christ, they have not believed in? How then, how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? You can hear the logical progression throughout the questions. These questions, don't think, well, these questions are for the preacher. These questions are for believers of all ages so that the nations might hear of Jesus. I thought about sharing the stories of many missionaries over and over again, talking about what they have done, who they went to, and the fruit from their ministry. But instead, I'm going to share the story of one missionary and one personal story. First, a missionary that you've likely heard of, Adoniram Judson. If you've not read the biography to the Golden Shore, I encourage you to read it. So he and his first wife, Anne, were among the first missionaries sent in American history. Judson experienced extreme heartache through sickness, through the death of his wives, and death of several children, and extreme, extreme suffering. God used suffering in Judson's life to advance the gospel. Judson lived for 40 years in Burma, now what we call Myanmar, doing ministry. He translated the scriptures, he proclaimed the gospel, he wrote numerous booklets outlining the good news of Jesus Christ. I thought this was interesting. At one point, Judson was criticized. He traveled a lot, and he was criticized for just speaking, just proclaiming the gospel. 
Someone wondered, why would this person, Judson, who traveled so far, traveled from far away, would not speak on anything else? Why did you come with to give us this gospel message? To which he replied, I gave them the most thrilling story that can be conceived of, the wondrous story of Jesus' dying love. This is why we say, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So we bring good news near and far because it's the news that saves. Now the second story, this is a personal story. Sheena and I and our family, we lived in Canada for four years. We lived a few months, six months in Nova Scotia and Cape Breton, three and a half years in Newfoundland. Uh, If you don't know this, Newfoundland has its own time zone, uh, which is very bizarre, an hour and a half uh, ahead of Eastern time zone. Anyway, uh, the Lord did a wonderful work in our ministry there, in our own hearts as we sought to be faithful in our church planning efforts. But one of the things that was so surprising to us was our, mini- our ministry amongst Chinese students. The Lord had brought Chinese students in our ministry because we were ministering at the university there, Memorial University. And what, what really just opened our eyes was their curiosity, their, their, their just love for knowledge, but they asked so many good questions. One of the students was Wu, Wu Zhang. Wu was quite the student, very bright. He had so many questions. I remember we'd have Bible study from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. On multiple occasions, we'd be going to 11 p.m. And we'd like, you guys have exams in the morning. You've got to stop. Um, and we need sleep. But Wu has so many questions about God, about him as creator, about God's plan for humanity. And as my ministry partner, Adam, and I shared the gospel with him, It got to the point where Wu understood. He believed the gospel and was baptized. We were were filled with awe. We praised God. And Wu believed the gospel. But then Wu was saddened that the gospel had not penetrated many parts of China. I can still hear his voice as he thought about his grandfather who believed in Buddha and had not heard of Jesus. He said to us, what about him? He does not know and has never heard of Jesus Christ. Can we pray for the gospel to go to these parts of China? Of course. Yes, we pray. Yes, we go. Yes, we take the gospel, the good news, to those who have not heard. That's part of Romans 10. But first, I pray that you believe the gospel message. Then I also pray that we take the gospel not only to the nations. Don't hear this as a missions sermon to take the gospel to nations like China or India or other areas, but also to our neighbors and our neighborhoods and to one of the most overlooked mission fields, our families. We're called to evangelize read the scriptures with our children and grandchildren and teach them and train them and send them to take the good news to others. So this is the gospel appeal. Hear Paul say, believe. Believe what? Believe the word. Believe the word about who? Believe the word about Christ. So as a follower of Christ, I make my appeal, turn to Christ, trust in Christ, 
treasure Christ today. One of my favorite verses from 2 Corinthians, we hear Paul say these words, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Why the begging, Paul? Why the pleading? Because he knows Christ has come and he knows he is the Savior who saves. But not all find this to be the case. Still some question. Maybe your family members, maybe your friends, still some resist. That's what we saw, that's what we see in verses 16 through 21. We see, we read of the resistance. Not all obey the gospel, Paul says. The Jews reject the gospel. But he says, this is nothing new. Moses predicted it. He wrote about it. Isaiah prophesied about it. And Paul points us to this truth again, that they reject the true glorious gospel. And Paul reminds us that our faith is connected to the message of Christ. He asks these rhetorical questions in verse 18. And then he answers his own question. Maybe they didn't understand. Then he answers his question in verse 19. He answers his question by quoting from the Old Testament, from quoting from Psalm. The heavens declare the, the glory of God. Creation reveals the plans of God. And he quotes from Moses. And he says basically, big summary, the Jews are without excuse. They've heard. They've understood but they've chosen to reject the message. Then he concludes with the last few verses saying, God's revealed himself in many ways, multiple ways. He showed his grace to Israel and he continually invited Israel to return him. Yet what did Israel do? They were obstinate, they were defiant and disobedient. So how do do we conclude this? How do we summarize How do we respond to Israel's example and to Paul's message and ultimately to God? Well, we believe in God, we take Him at His word, and we trust in Christ. There's so many great verses in this section, maybe your favorite verses in this section, but I wanted to highlight verses 11 and 12 as we close. I think these verses get overlooked by what's right before and what's right after. Let me encourage you to memorize verses 11 and 12. The scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. Since there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. The Lord blesses all who call on him. Our family has enjoyed listening to the musical artist Toby Mack, and him and his wife had a tragedy in in their family not too long ago, the passing of their son in 2019. Toby Mack had this to say. He said, "My my wife and I would want the world to know this. We don't follow God because we have some sort of under the table deal with him, like we'll follow you if you bless us. We follow God because we love Him. It's our honor. He's the God of the hills and valleys, and He is beautiful above all things. This is why we believe Christ is beautiful and Lord of all. Let's pray.
Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you point us to Christ time and time again. So Lord, teach us your word that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. We can't justify ourselves. We can't make ourselves look good enough. We can't clean ourselves up. But there is righteousness to all who believe in Jesus Christ, the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, and the king that we need. So Lord, we thank you for this time in your word. Lord, I pray that we will proclaim this message, this message of faith to our family first and foremost, to our friends, to our neighbors, to our co-workers, and to the nations who many times are next door. And so we thank you for all of these things, and we give you all the glory. It's in Christ's name. Amen.